Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Before I get into my subject matter today, I want to just mention that many of you are playing through the pain today. And I see it, I recognize it, and I praise God for it. Some of you are playing through the pain of loss in your family. February is a month we've lost some members of the church in, and you're thinking about that. You're playing through the pain. It means something to me, and it means something to your other brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got to play through the pain. Brother Doug's struggling with a cold that he can't seem to get over. He got up and led half the song service. Very helpful to me, but he's playing through the pain. You know what I mean? I know Brother Sonny Bonner had surgery this week. He probably, you know, I don't know if I feel too great about coming to church today. I've had this kind of thing go on. A medical situation is probably difficult. He's playing through the pain. It's a tremendous example. Brother Thomas Burnett's playing through the pain back there. Every time I see him walk into this church, it's an encouragement to me. I appreciate you all playing through the pain. I really do. So I just want to make note of that before I get into my subject here today. I'm going to read you something. Hopefully you're familiar with. (laughs) This is the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That is the First Amendment to the Constitution incredibly important amendment to the Constitution. So much so that the Founding Fathers said this is the first thing we need to establish as part of what we're dealing with here in the United States of America. Very, very important. That right is precious. And it's very protective of ministers. I think people get this twisted a lot of ways because they say, well, Shouldn't you try to prevent people from saying things that are evil or things that are hostile or things that seem unpleasant? And I understand that sentiment among people. You know, you don't want to support the idea of saying something unpleasant or mean or whatever. But the trouble comes in in the matter of who gets to define what is evil. See what I'm saying? Now, Christian people can be deceived on this and say, well, I think we shouldn't let people say certain things. There's some guy out in public and he's yelling obscenities or whatever. That just seems awful. I don't want my grandkids to hear that. We ought to prevent him from doing that. I kind of understand the sentiment. I don't want my kids to hear this foul language and stuff like that. But there's a principle that is greater than that matter. And the reason this is such an important statement in our government is because it comes down to who gets to define what is evil. You see that? And I think ministers often lose sight of this, but ministers who are in the know recognize that it's very easy for your society to say what ministers say is evil. You see, when you get to determine what is evil and what is not, and then say what can be said and what cannot be said on that basis... It's not going to pan out the way a Christian person thinks it ought to be. It's going to pan out in such a way eventually over time such that ministers cannot say what they want to say. Now the testimony of science does not speak to men rising from the dead, but the Christian religion believes this. That could easily be labeled as misinformation. You follow me? 
And a gospel minister then is a disseminator of misinformation. Very easy for this to happen. We're on the cusp of it right now, the way things are going in American society. We've lost sight of some of the precious heritage we have in things like the Bill of Rights in the United States of America. Now, that is a secular document. I believe it is one of the greatest pieces of secular law that has ever been created in the course of human history. It has fostered tremendous creativity and expression in a country like the United States. It's just incredibly important. However, this right that has been codified in the Bill of Rights doesn't guarantee that anybody has anything valid to say. You follow that? Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't necessarily mean you ought to do that something. You see that? Now, Sometimes Americans get a little too zealous about the Constitution, which I'm a firm supporter of this idea of constitutional liberty and the Bill of Rights. And they take that to a level where they say, well, that just means anything I want to say is something I ought to say. There's a different level of consideration that comes into play when you are a Christian disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? This sort of lays out a secular principle that we're living under, as a matter of government. But the Bible has a lot to say about our speech, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, the matter of speech. You know, how we speak can make a huge difference in the lives of people. I think the fact that God has given preachers and ministers to the kingdom of God for the purpose of instruction clearly illustrates the point that how people speak can make a big difference in the lives of others. How many of you out there, if you think over your life being in the old Baptist church, can think of many occasions where you say, I heard this elder preach something right out of the Word of God, and it meant so much to me. And I remember it today as if I was sitting here 30 years ago when I heard it. It meant something to me. Well, something was said there that made a big difference in your life. I can think of numerous examples in my own Christian walk. And so the principle that how we speak can make a huge difference in the lives of people should be something that we consider, and we should undertake a study of what the Bible says about how we should speak. We have the secular freedom to speak, right? Now, how should we speak as disciples? I'm going to start with this principle. Look at Colossians chapter 4. And verse 16, verse 6 rather. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. Now that does not say, just speak your mind willy-nilly, the first thing that comes to your mind, just say it to whoever you want to. Because, hey brother, you got freedom of speech. This is calling upon us to think about speech and to be careful about how we use our words. Let your speech be always with grace. Thinking of the notion that you are a recipient of God's grace, right? You are not the lawmaker who's going to bring it all down. This is how I think it ought to be. You are someone who is a recipient of grace. And if someone else is your brother or sister in Christ, they likewise are a recipient of grace. And it says that it should be seasoned with salt. Now turn over to Mark chapter 9, starting in about verse 50. 
Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Now salt is the thing that makes your food taste good. I'm of the opinion that you just about can't put enough salt on something. I love salt. I put salt on watermelon. I think it makes watermelon taste better. I love salt on food. And I tell you, if my doctor says, you know, you got to start cutting back on salt or you're going to die, I choose death. That's just kind of where I'm coming from. <laughs> See, I really like salt. And most people do. And over the course of human history, people have done a lot to acquire salt so that they can put it in their food. It enhances in the proper amount. I'm not going to tell you to go out there and start eating salt the way I do, maybe. It enhances the flavor of food. It's like the primary spice, if you will, that people add into food. They may add a whole host of other things, peppers and basil and bay leaf and whatever, all these fennel seeds. And we've got a whole drawer full of all these different things that you put in different dishes and give them flavor. But, you know, it doesn't even matter really if you're making an Italian dish or a Mexican dish or some home cooked thing. You might use some of those other ancillary spices. But every one of those dishes has got some salt added to it, doesn't it? Because salt has just got to be there. It's just got to be there. You should think about your speech in the form of salt, right? Think about what you say as salt. And irrespective of my practice of maybe putting too much salt on things, most people would say it is possible to get something too salty. And the right amount of salt is the right thing, right? Think of your speech as salt. Like, think of it in this way. Is what I'm about to say going to improve this situation? Is it going to minister grace into this person's life? Am I trying to encourage them in a way that they can receive and that will improve the conversation? And by the way, maybe don't need too much of it, right? You need the right amount of it. So there's a measure of salt that needs to be there. So I'm going to suggest that there's a wisdom that needs to govern how we speak with one another. And that primary north star that we should be thinking of is ministering grace. Is this going to improve their understanding? Is it going to improve their situation? Uh, uh, maybe their, their situational awareness? Sometimes people get to doing things they don't even realize what they've done. Well, can I do this in a way that is like improving the conversation and improving their understanding, like adding some salt to a dish. So it's got to be properly measured, and we need to think about that as a governing principle in how we speak. Now, James warns us about the tongue. Turn over to James chapter 1, and we get his initial warning here. James chapter 1 and verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. Now James is going to teach us some things about the tongue that tell us that every man has some measure of problem in reigning in his tongue. I would say it this way, if you are a grown man with any measure of spiritual maturity, you have to be able to identify some times in your life where I have used my tongue in the form of speech and it made a situation much worse, right? Now, 
You might have said, well, I had the intent of making that, you know, I was trying to add a little salt into the situation, trying to improve the flavor of that conversation. And in reality, you just dumped a bunch of salt on there and ruined the whole dish, right? So there's a measure of salt that should be applied if you're making a dish. And if you pour too much in there, it's going to be inedible, honestly. I think what James is teaching here, and he says a little more further on in, in his letter, is that every man has some measure of problem with the tongue. It's very difficult. And when you use your tongue in the form of speech in that way, in a harmful way, it does an enormous disservice to your profession of the Christian religion. You see that? It says his religion is vain. Now, that doesn't mean, well, some guy, you know, lost control of his tongue, and now it just proved he's going straight to hell. No, it means that you are not exhibiting the practical benefits of the Christian religion in how you're living your life, which is really the instruction of the New Testament. It's like, how should I live? Now, knowing what Christ has done, how should I live? Well, I'm going to go out there and just say whatever I want, say it as salty as I want, just make it as difficult as it can possibly be in every situation. Well, you have learned the Christian religion in vain because you have not received the practical benefit that you should have from learning how to speak. You see that? That's what it's talking about when it says his religion is vain. It's not producing the sort of conduct and fruit that it ought to produce. Now, every man should consider this. I've had my difficulties with the tongue. I continue to have them. I'm experiencing a great difficulty of it at this very moment. Just the matter of preaching and trying to come up with a way to say things that is correct and is ministers salt and makes the situation taste a little better is something that ministers are always dealing with, but we all communicate and we usually do it within the context of work or in our families or in our local community. And we need to think about it in terms of how do we make the situation better, right? How do we minister grace into those situations? Now, we all struggle with this and it's something we should all consider. Look over at James chapter 3 where he really starts to get into this. And he's talking about teachers. He starts by saying, Brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. If you take on the matter of teaching, first of all, the implication here is that not everyone in the kingdom of God is going to be a formal teacher in the kingdom of God, taking on the role, for example, of pastor or elder in the church. So it's something that people need to approach with some measure of gravity. It is possible to be desirous of that office, but not be gifted or given the capability of holding that office. And it's something that everyone should approach with some measure of reverential fear. If they believe that is their calling, they should give it some serious consideration. And there's a condemnation that comes into view here. Everything you say is under scrutiny if you are an elder and you're preaching in public and you know we put our sermons out on the internet and stuff like that. And I usually, when I'm editing sermons, I go through and I have a bad constitution. I'm constantly clearing my throat and coughing and all that. And typically in a setting like this, you don't notice it as much, but if it's just audio, it's downright revolting. So I have to go through and take all that out. And when I do that, I have to listen to what I'm saying. And I often find, you know, I said this thing. Sometimes I misspoke. 
and it just makes me cringe. I used the wrong word or I said the opposite of what I intended to say just because I got confused in the moment. It's very distressing. And so there's a certain amount of stress that comes with the idea of public speaking. And if you're trying to preach the gospel, a matter of great gravity and seriousness, every minister I know wants to say, when I got done, I said everything the way I think I should have said it and as best I could. And you don't often do that. So you make mistakes when you speak and you think about that. And he says, kind of alludes to this. It talks about a greater condemnation. So there's people out there listening and well, they said that and they can uncharitably say, well, he said something that's totally wrong. I guarantee I have. In some instances, I know it was inadvertent. I misspoke. But I'm sure I've said things that I just had an improper understanding of. I'm an imperfect man. And there's a greater level of scrutiny that is placed upon someone who is trying to get up and preach the truth. And it says this, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body. And I think the implication there is that really no man's able to do this, right? No man is perfect in this respect. By the way, this is one of the reasons that being able to gather next Sunday after lunch and have discussions of things, there may be times when I have misspoken. You say, well, you said this in a sermon, and isn't that the opposite of what we believe? Well, in some instances it might be, right? You can change one word. You could say did or didn't and have it in the wrong place, and all of a sudden you have kind of promoted a false doctrine by misspeaking, right? Those conversations, by the way, give you an opportunity to say, am I understanding this correctly? It gives me an opportunity to say, yeah, I misspoke on that. You're right about that. And it gives you an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm actually proving the fact that I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm not just soaking it all in saying, whatever the preacher says, that's what I believe. You could say, well, I've at least proved to you that I'm listening and I'm engaged in what you said because I heard something you said that didn't sound quite right to me. I would love to discuss those. And in fact, it would give me a sense of relief to know that something that I misspoke, I was able to stand before you and say, yeah, that was, that was wrong. I'm, um, let me correct that. Let me restate myself. That's a good practice to have there. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. He's talking about a little thing that influences a big thing. You see that? And he's going to relate it to the tongue or to our speech. Behold, also the ships which, though they are so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Now you think about that. In the case of a giant ship, you've got the winds of the earth blowing it around, right? Planetary forces of water and wind blowing it around. And yet a guy that's back there with the tiller that has a relatively small piece of wood on the back side of that ship is turning it one way or the other. He's making that ship go in totally different directions based on a very small piece of wood relative to the size of the ship. And it's overcoming planetary forces that are set against it in the form of currents and winds. And that is the image of your tongue. That is what your speech is in this world. It can have a dramatic effect on the circumstances. It can have a dramatic effect on the direction of your family, the direction of your relationship with your wife, the direction of your relationship with your children. 
And so don't underestimate the powerful influence of your tongue and how you use it. You see how you're going to have to have some grace in how you speak and you're going to have to try to think of it as salt. You're going to have to try to use it in a way that improves the situation rather than making it worse. Even so, verse 5, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Smokey the bear said, only you can prevent forest fires. A little spark can set ablaze millions of acres of forest. The tiniest spark. That's why you have things like burn bands that come up. Everything gets so dry that you think if there was just one little spark, you could burn an entire county as a result of that because it just takes a little tiny spark. If you ride a motorcycle along certain trails, public trails that are part of the public lands you can ride on, those motorcycles have to have what's called a spark arrester in them, which is a component that's kind of in the back of the muffler. And it's made to catch little sparks that come out of the back of your motorcycle, right? And the reason they have to have that is because a little spark could set that entire park on fire. That is your tongue. Well, people don't pay that much attention to what I say. I'm not some great big public speaker. I don't have an opportunity to stand up in front of people and do this. I'm not on a political platform. I'm not a pundit that's on TV talking about political matters. Nobody really cares about my opinion. That doesn't change the fact that your tongue is capable of generating the spark that can set your entire family ablaze, can set your community ablaze, can set your relationships with your friends ablaze, We need to have a bit of a spark arrester on how we speak. You see what I'm saying? We need to be thinking of it in terms of salt and how do we improve the situation and be mindful of how the tongue can set things ablaze. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. That's pretty serious language, just talking about how we speak to one another. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. That's true. My great-grandmother had a pet bird. We've got a pet dog and a pet cat. Some of you have pet cows. Well, not pets, I guess. (laughs) You've got tamed animals, right? Sheep and goats and all this sort of thing. You got them under control. They're under your dominion. And so man has evidently done that. But the tongue can no man tame. And it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, we watch a lot of old westerns, and one of the common themes in westerns is some guy who's going to break a horse. And I'm fascinated by this concept because the... (laughs) degree of either bravery or insanity that it takes for a man to get on top of a wild horse and stay on it until he has dominated that animal's will to such a degree that he's now tame is fascinating to me. Some of y'all have been involved in rodeos and stuff like that and you've seen this going on with horses or bulls and it just boggles my mind. I can remember when I was a kid, I'd see that and I wouldn't think that much of it because I had never really been in the presence of a horse. (laughs) But then when I got a little older and I went out and I rode some horses and I was like, this animal is enormous and you're way up off the ground when you're sitting on one of them. And to think that this thing is going to be bucking, jumping around, trying to knock me off of it 
and I'm gonna have to stay on it till it calms down. That just seems insane to me, and I know there's men that, that do it. But it takes a lot of effort, I would say. You can't just pick some random Joe out of the crowd at your local rodeo and throw him on some bucking bronco and have him ride it out like it's a show horse in about 20 minutes. It takes exceptional skill and extraordinary amounts of effort to actually be able to do this, and not everybody can do it. I think this is a lesson we should learn. When we see what it takes to tame certain animals, the amount of bravery and effort and commitment that a man has to have to be able to do that is remarkable. That's your tongue. Okay? Next time you go to the rodeo and you see those guys, you're like, wow, I don't, I don't have what it takes there. You might think, well, I'm, I probably don't have what it takes to bridle my own tongue. Because it's the same thing. In fact, it's worse. Because this verse says, yeah, men are able to do that. They're able to get that horse under control. But no man is really able to completely tame his tongue. No man can do it. So it's a dangerous thing. We talked about how it's a fire and how it can set things ablaze. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That sounds pretty bad. It's a big influence and it can be quite dangerous. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. We can switch between blessing and cursing so quickly it'll make your head swim. It's crazy, but that's not how we should be. We're quick to curse others. And then we come in here, I talk about putting your church pants on, showing up on Sunday. We're all on our best behavior here. Right? We're all the best. We're probably the best Christians we ever are when we walk in this building. We don't want to make a bad impression. But we also curse men with our mouths from time to time. And James says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. And in other words, this is not just something that you relegate to the world of the alien dead sinner out there who hadn't darkened the door of church in 20, 30 years. It's not that. It's not some thing that the pagans practice, that unbelievers practice. This is among the brethren. This is something that we can do. So we need to be advised of the power of our speech you know, we need to be gracious in it. We need to know the damage it can do and what an influence it can be. And know that we shouldn't be blessing on Sunday and cursing someone else on another day. It's going to be a fight that you're going to have for the rest of your life. You're going to have to bridle your tongue. And there's going to be some effort required to do that. Now, here's the first thing I would consider in the fight. There's a statement made in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. Maybe this is helpful. So I don't know what to say. I don't know how to speak the right way in every circumstance. Well, let's start a little further upstream than that. Before we start trying to formulate how to be salty in our speech in a way that improves the flavor of the conversation and ministers grace, maybe we should think about what is said in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Well, that sounds pretty good. I try to pray that we love one another. Jesus Christ said, love one another. And I think it's easy to gloss over that, but I sincerely try to enter into what does that mean? What does it mean when it talks about loving one another? Well, I think this is one of the things that it means. 
It means bridling your tongue to some degree and trying to minister grace into the situations. Love one another, and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet. Now there's a place to start. Now if you've had trouble bridling your tongue in the past, well, I said this, and I probably shouldn't have said that. Maybe instead of starting with, how should I modify this sentence or the tone of voice that I had so that I have a better way of speaking, maybe that's too complicated a maneuver. It's entirely possible that the problem with what you said was just the fact that you said anything at all, right? Maybe we should study to be quiet in some matters and say, you know what, maybe I'm just going to hold my tongue on certain things. And this speaks in particular to the ways that we're inclined to speak about others. That you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. What's implicit in this is that you can start providing commentary on a whole lot of what somebody else is doing. Right? And I would say, if I were to paraphrase this verse, it's something along the lines of be quiet and mind your own business. Now, there are times when it is appropriate to approach a brother or sister in Christ who has erred in some way. If any, James goes on to say, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, right? He talks about that in chapter 5. There is a way to correct a brother or sister in Christ, but it is not your business to constantly be trying to fix everything going on in someone else's life. You've got plenty on your own plate. And I suspect that if we directed as much energy towards our own self-improvement in things, we would find less time to be able to fix everybody else's life and be so fascinated with their business rather than our own business, right? So there's wisdom that has to be invoked in that. I'm not saying there's no time when you don't try to help somebody who's gone into an error. But there's a lot to be said for this idea of studying to be quiet and minding your own business. We said the tongue was a fire, right? And people don't always do this. That means, I'm telling you, churches have been set ablaze, absolutely set on fire by people who didn't study to be quiet and mind their own business about certain things. I bet you, if we just started looking around and started thinking about all the stuff we got going on in our lives, we could stir up a whole bunch of trouble by mean, well, I think you ought to do this. And, that. and if we focused on one another's problems, instead of focusing on our own problems, we could set this church ablaze to such a degree that people say, I don't even know why they call that Harmony Church. It looks like a food fight over there to me. There's a lot to be said about studying to be quiet, and maybe that's where we start, right? If you're having trouble with the tongue, maybe you just start by saying, you know what? I need to practice the idea of not saying some things. Do you even know what it feels like to not say something? I know when I get the urge to say something, I, you know, preachers talk about their preaching. It's a fire shut up in my bones. I got to get it out. Well, I mean, the flesh can raise up statements that you want to make that feel very much the same way. I just got to get this out. I got to say it. Have you experienced what it feels like to say, I am not going to say it? 
Have you ever held that carnal fire of something unprofitable that you wanted to say? Have you ever said, I'm just going to hold this in. I'm going to feel the burn. (laughs) Well, if you haven't, it's probably a pretty good indication that there have been occasions when you probably should have experienced it. You probably just said, I need to hold this to myself. I don't have to provide running commentary on everything that's going on in this world. This can be difficult for me at times. I mean, I'm a very social person. I like to talk. If you're of that sort, it can be a tremendous asset in many regards. Helps you build relationships with people if you're able to talk to them and you're able things like that. But you know what? You can say too much. You can feel too at liberty to say everything you feel like you want to say. And it may not minister grace in all circumstances. So maybe we should aspire to feel the burn of holding in some thought you had that really we should be studying to be quiet and and not saying everything. Look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Now this came up in, uh, we're talking about little articles put out on Facebook this week, and there was a question asked about this. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now some Christian people get this idea that they think every single circumstance is an opportunity for me to just go out and tell people some kind of spiritual truth. Whether they want to hear it or not, I'm just constantly out there hitting people over the head with it. This verse teaches that that is not true. If you're standing before someone who is evidently hostile to the gospel, they don't want to hear anything about it. They hate it. They hate the people who believe on Jesus Christ. You are under no obligation to stand there and try to explain gospel truth to them. If there's an evident hostility of this pig-like form in front of you, you're not under any obligation to stand there and try to explain the atonement of Jesus Christ to those people. And there's a warning here. It's like you can press into that matter so much that they'll turn and rend you. They have no, like you throw pearls before swine. You know, pearls are precious little things. You had these divers, you know, years ago, they had to go down in the deep, find a bunch of oysters and whatnot, open them up. They only find a pearl in one out of a thousand or whatever. They're constantly having to go down. And there's all this effort that went into finding natural pearls. They were very precious. So you could string them together into a, into a necklace or something. Very valuable, expensive, and now you're going to go out to the pig pen and just throw that in front of a hog? He's going to tear it to bits, smash them into a gazillion pieces. He has no sense of the value of this item you just set before them. And that's how it is with someone who is evidently hostile towards the gospel. And you'll encounter them in your life. There's a study to be quiet moment right there, right? There's a moment where you just say, you know what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a holy and sacred thing. You're telling somebody the truth of the death of the Son of God on behalf of His covenant people. And if someone just wants to drag that through the mud and have no regard for it, you're not under any obligation to continue trying to teach those people. Now that's very contrary. And by the way, I would say a lot of Christian groups who say, well, unless they hear and believe the gospel, and the gospel is the instrument that gets them eternally saved, they're the people who would be apt to press into this matter. They would say, well, if they don't believe the gospel, we need to double down on teaching them the gospel so that they'll change. This is one of the reasons the Bible does not teach that the gospel is going to regenerate people. Right? So, if people are rejecting that, you don't have to continue to double and triple down on that. Sheep are hungry. You see what I'm saying? You set out a little sheep food, and you're going to find sheep are going to move towards it, right? 
you don't have to cram it down their throats. And doing so doesn't make them hungry. So there's a kind of a study to be quiet moment there. And we have to have some wisdom. Pray that the Lord will give us wisdom in knowing those occasions. Now something else about speech I want to get to over in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is said because fathers are prone to being too hard on their kids about certain things. And you've got to temper that. You can discourage your children by being too hard with them on certain things. And the thing that happens with fathers, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, maybe more so, is that your pride of who you are and who you expect them to be gets wrapped up in the matter such that the harsh thing that you're pouring on top of them and the discouraging and difficult thing that you're heaping on top of them, the provoking of them is really wrapped up in your own sense of my kids ought to be better than that because I'm better than that. You see that? It gets really wrapped up in your pride and and all those sorts of things. And I, I confess it to you. It's something that we need to be aware of. You do have to instruct your children. And that means at times opposing what they believe or what they think or what they say. And you need to know that. So you've got to have that measure of salt in the matter, right? But it's very easy to go beyond that and to put too much into the matter to such a point where you discourage them, you provoke them to anger, and now they're discouraged. And discouragement can come in the form, well, there's just really nothing I can do to please my old man. He just doesn't think I do anything right. Right? That's a real danger. And I think that one of the dangers of that is that if you press too hard on that too many times, you can get to the place where your kids just won't listen to you anymore. I just don't think my dad listens to me. They provoke me to anger. Now I'm mad about it, and I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. So that's a danger that's out there. Again, this is another example where you got to figure out the right amount of salt to put into this dish. Right? It needs to be salty. Not so salty that it's inedible. And you need to minister grace into the situation. And it's difficult, and I think this is there because men are so prone to this matter. Now look over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is where we're instructed to teach our children. This comes out like on verse 5. Well, it starts with the Shema in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. You've got to teach your kids the truth. That's some of the speech you've got to have. And we need to be better at that. All of us do. You need to engage them with spiritual conversations. We have a thousand carnal distractions around us. And we've got to be purposeful about having spiritual conversations, lest you look back and then over 10 years say, I never had any significant spiritual conversation with my children. These things are important, and it's talking about how they are woven into the fabric of your life. So you don't have to have a formal, this was the sit-down Bible time, though that's certainly a good thing to do, by the way. But weave it into your life. You're out there, you know, trimming the hedges, and you're talking about, you know, Something the Lord did in your life, you know, weave it into your life. These types of spiritual conversations about how the Lord has been in your life and and has improved your life and things that they can avoid by following the Lord. 
So that's very important. Now, I'll close on this. Last week I tried to speak on provocation. I talked about Korah's rebellion and how they provoked God in the wilderness. And that's a dramatic story in uh, Numbers chapter 16. If you want to read something this week, read Numbers chapter 16. It is a dramatic story in the Bible. It's a lesson for us about not provoking God with our unbelief, right? Provocation is something in many respects we should avoid. Don't provoke God by being disobedient. I think that's very easy to understand. And number 16 is a good example of how that can go very poorly for you, right? But we can't throw out provocation completely. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's said in the New Testament we are to provoke one another to love and to good works, right? So there are some provocations, encouragements to do the right thing. But I would say this, in the matter of instruction, there's always some provocation involved, some measure of it, a profitable measure of provocation. Provocative questions have to be asked. This in uh, education is referred to as a dialectic, right? Where you're going back and forth. This is the instruction we were talking about when we were talking about getting together uh, after lunch next Sunday. Questions and answers. This is known as dialectic. Pursuing the truth by going back and forth and answering questions. And this sort of provocation, provocative questions, are highly instrumental in the matter of instruction in the Lord's New Testament church. I'll give you these examples. Jesus Christ asked a lot of questions in the Bible. You ever think about that? And what you'll find is that they were not questions asked in a rhetorical sense for which there was no dialogue going on. Now, some of them may have been. However, there are many instances where he asked questions and people are answering him. And then he's talking back to him again. That is a dialectic form of learning where you're going back and forth and you're learning things by asking questions and having them answer. Jesus asked provocative questions and it's to be done in the context of learning. And I'm going to paraphrase some of them for you here just to give you some thought about it. I want to encourage you to think about the idea. I want to make you more comfortable with the idea of questions and answers. Because Jesus asked a lot of questions and he answered a lot of questions. I'm paraphrasing here, but Jesus asked things like, can you change your height by worrying about it? Is that a provocative question? Does it make you think, well, actually that question very much implies the answer, does it not? Believe me, I'd be as tall as Brother Sonny if you could. Guarantee it. I'm so jealous of him because he's this tall. You know, for years I'd I'd introduce services or he'd introduce me and I'd have to adjust the microphone. That's just downright humiliating for a guy like me. He won a basketball state championship and I'm up here just, I would change my height if I could think about it and be several inches taller, but you can't do that, can you? Jesus is teaching something about your nature. There's things you can't change. Do you see others' flaws more than your own? There's a paraphrased question from Jesus Christ, right? That's one we talked about earlier. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? What's he trying to say there? He's something we say a lot of times in this church. You're in a family right here. You look around here, you're looking at mothers and brothers and sisters. I got mothers all over this building. So thankful for it. Got sisters all over this building, brothers all over this building. He's making a point there because he's asking a provocative question. Who do people say that I am? Boy, you get a lot of answers to that question. 
And Jesus answered it. <laughs> Here's one that's pretty provocative, really provocative. Did you never read the Scripture? <laughs> wow! Now, I've kind of you know, tiptoed around that question a few times over the years that I've preached, but I can't even imagine the cold chill that would go down some, some brother or sister's spine who's never read the Bible, never put any effort into studying it, to have the Lord of glory stand there in front of you and say, have you never read the Bible? Wow. Where is your faith? Pretty provocative question, isn't it? Do you want to be well? If you don't believe Moses, how will you believe me? There's Christians all over the country right now. Well, Moses wrote about that Red Sea part. <laughs> that ain't nothing. That didn't happen. Some weather thing, whatever. <laughs> they don't believe Moses. Oh, but we believe Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't believe Moses, it's not even possible for you to believe Jesus. You see that? What concern is it of yours? Jesus asked provocative questions. You can learn a lot from that sort of provocation, provided it's done in a salty fashion to minister grace into your life. I hope we're able to do that in the coming days. I give you an opportunity to join the church by letter of baptism. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.